What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. What's up, guys? I'm excited to join you today again for a conversation about real estate. And I have brought on Hugh today to talk with me. Welcome, Hugh. Hey, Daniel. How's it going? Going well. We're uh, I'm in a the middle of an ice storm in Kentucky right now, so that's kind of exciting. But other than that, not much going on here. Yeah, we got the same thing going on here. Carrie got an extra telemed day, so that's always she's upstairs right above me doing telemed. Nice, nice. Well, yeah. So there's a lot to talk about with real estate. I thought we would talk just kind of high level real estate and talk about some of the things that you guys might be hearing or thinking about and maybe talk about kind of big picture what uh, some of the different avenues are to invest in real estate and maybe share some, um, you know, experiences we've seen with with our clients. And Hugh is, uh, I would say, you know, a little bit more knowledgeable than myself in specifically real estate investing, you know, some of the specific areas, especially when you start getting into like syndications and those sorts of fun deals. But we'll try to keep it uh, more general for today, I think would be good. And then we'll kind of see where it goes. So maybe a good starting point would be, Hugh, if we could talk about like the landscape. Because I I always um, hear people, it seems like when they're wording the question, it's like, hey, I want to invest in real estate. How do I do it? And that's the question. So what is real estate? Yeah, most of the time when you hear people say, I want to invest in real estate. It's because they've maybe had a friend who's had some success in it. And that might be rental properties. That might be other forms of passive real estate that you hear about all the time, like a syndication or a could be a private real estate fund that invests in rental properties or big multifamily apartment complexes. But most of the time when you hear people say, I want to invest in real estate, those are typically the things that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's usually from a word of mouth or like a buddy or heard it on something or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Maybe I was reading a blog and heard about a doctor that reduced their hours or maybe they're completely out of medicine now and they are living off of passive income. Yeah, right, something make, like making that. Making six figures of uh, passive income, not lifting a pinky on real estate. That's right. That's typically what what they've heard. Right. Cool. Well, we'll talk about that more. <laughs> not not always as easy as they, you know you sometimes hear. But um, the other thing might be good to clarify. So the average person, I don't think, realizes that they probably already own real estate. That's right. If you own um, a total stock market index fund or an S&P 500 index fund, there is or a some target retirement date fund. Exactly. There is some real estate exposure in that. Um, your primary residence, you know, a lot of people don't think about that as maybe an investment asset, but yeah. If you're a client of our planning firm, you have real estate. Uh, if we're managing your investments, you have real estate as part of that asset allocation, there's actually a pretty decent, I mean, it's, you know, give or take depending on the client, but it's, you know, a decent like 10% ish range, give or take a few percentage points 
in real estate? Yeah, I would say if your goal is just to have some exposure to real estate, let me describe an investment for you. So there's an investment that has 170 companies in it. So it's not one single property. It's 170 companies. Within those 170 companies, one of them is Amazon's largest landlord. That's a pretty good business to be in. One of them owns hundreds of apartment complexes across geographically diversified in all the hottest markets in the US. And there's another one that builds single family homes, then rents them out. And they are all over the country. They make it really easy to move from one city to the next and rent a property under that same umbrella. That is the Vanguard real estate ETF. (laughs) It has very little expense. You can buy it, sell it, click of a button. You don't have to, there's no holding period. So that's a form of real estate exposure as well. Yeah. And that's, that's the one we typically use uh, in our client accounts. And that's a really, really, so I think the good foundation to, if you're going to take away anything is that that is a excellent way to own real estate. It's extremely low cost. Like he was saying, it's extremely liquid as in you can sell and buy, which is not the case with a lot of real estate tends to be very efficient, very competitive. When we compare it to other people's real estate in some of these other categories we'll talk about, a lot of times this thing we're talking about has done better than it. And so very efficient, very low cost. When in doubt, that's always the place to start, I think. And you should also be comparing to that, I think. So a lot of people are like, you know, I want to get into these other things that we'll talk about. And they could be great, but like, How do you measure whether it's great? (laughs) I think a lot of people struggle with that. And so I think this is a good kind of foundation of like, what is the real estate market kind of, what's a good floor of, or benchmark, I guess is the right word of what the real estate market is, is doing. And most cases people should really only be doing that. Yeah. I would say, you know, if we just kind of think about our typical clientele, let's kind of divide it into two segments. You might have someone who is in training still or a few years removed from training, probably don't have a ton of assets built up yet. You probably need that liquidity to be able to buy and sell or access that money relatively quickly. You might be buying a house, you know, lots of things going on at that stage of your career. There's also just by law, most of these are only for accredited investors. And what I'm talking, what I'm talking about is the real estate syndications or the private real estate funds that you might hear of. Mm-hmm. Typically, you have to be an so accredited investor. An, what is an accredited investor? Yeah, so you either need one million dollars of net worth, excluding your household, excluding your primary residence, um, or two hundred thousand dollars of income if you're single, three hundred thousand dollars of income if you're married. Mm-hmm. Those are the baseline requirements. So these are for the other real estate options we haven't really got into. Um, Right. Well, not all of them, but like, you know, syndications and most private real estate, like they're going to require private investments like that often almost always require you to be an accredited investor. And that's just the requirements for that. That's right. Now, if you're someone maybe a little bit later stage in your career, you are an accredited investor 
maybe for one reason or another, you want to take some money and allocate to say, you know, multifamily housing, you want to get into these sort of private investments. I think that's all fine and well, as long as you kind of do it in the manner that aligns with your portfolio allocation, your target allocation, just carve out it, carving out a, port, a percentage of your portfolio for that specifically. And also just being aware of how long that money's locked up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess first takeaway is probably most people, at least for starters, think about like this Vanguard total stock market, Vanguard real estate fund is like a, what's the ticker on that? Do you know the ticker? What is it? Ooh. Is there some regulators? I know the, I know the ticker. We say the ticker on. I know the ticker for the. Uh, yeah, it might be. A, there might be some regulation. You go. You guys can Google that. It's Vanguard total. Vanguard Vanguard Real Estate Index Fund. Google that if you want to see the 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 fund itself. But look at that as like your floor baseline of real estate investing. You might realize that you already own some of it. Or you might realize that in itself is a sufficient investment. It's it's it, it's really truly passive, especially if you're early career and you're kind of starting to build up, get started, that sort of thing. Now, if you're kind of wanting to take the next step, or maybe it's not a next step, it's more of just like a you know go a different direction, um, and you have you're a credited investor. You you've kind of later career stage, you have assets, you have lots to invest. That's when we start talking about these other forms of real estate, whether it be like syndications, like you were saying, or private real estate. And maybe before we get into what those look like, what makes for a good person that should be doing that or thinking about that? Like, what's the type of person that might ought to think about that? I, I know what I'm thinking, but I'm curious. Yeah. I'm thinking of the type of person who can afford to take that risk for a higher return, really. Yeah. They That's might just have interest in this type of thing, right? Like you're all fine and well and covered. You're, let's say you're financially independent already. You don't necessarily need to work. Maybe mm -hmm. that's the case. Maybe your kid's college funding is secured, right? All of your base level goals are taken care of at this point or very close to. And you say, hey, this is something I'm interested in. I want to carve out 5% or 10% of my portfolio. and try to get a higher return. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, I think you kind of already said it, but like a passion for it is the best. I think that's the best scenario is if you really have some interest in it or you have this like unique area you want to like, you know, like a passion project you want to get into. And um, it's so it's basically it's not I think it works best if it's not about or you don't need it to perform, you know, so it's not about it's always about the numbers to some extent, but it's not like you're you're not reliant upon the performance of it to meet XYZ goal. I think that's a good kind of foundational starting point because I see a lot of people that are saying like um, they're equating it to a goal or yeah. they're using their retirement plan to fund it. Yeah, I would say don't look at investing in real estate as the goal. Nine out of 10 people. Um, that's that's a good probably not the it. goal. It's you're looking at it as a tool to reach a goal that you've heard someone else reach that you want to also reach and you heard they reached it through real estate. That's mm. probably pretty common and how this comes up. Mm. Another, you know, just a quick mention, kind of like a bonus or a cherry on top for somebody who this could work for is 
maybe, you know, most of our listen, listeners are physicians, but maybe your spouse is in the real estate business um, yeah. and has real estate professional status. That's that opens up some other tax benefits as yeah. well. But even then, it's still big time caution is like, don't do it for the money. I think it's it's not even really for anything. Like, I think it's risky to, or I would exercise caution going after it strictly for the money. That tends to result in like issues later down the road. Don't go in it to become rich or something. I mean, it's got to be some other reason, ideally. Yeah, that's always good advice. And a lot of these things are not small minimums. So you, yeah. you don't necessarily want to uh, put all of your say hundred thousand dollars into something like this hoping and i really hope i get this back in five years or seven years when the fund closes okay so what are the so let's talk about uh the different alternatives we're we're hitting around at so syndications and private real estate wherever you want to start let's talk about those i guess let's start with a syndication that's fairly easy so what is that actually so you have someone who is what's called a sponsor or in other words a general partner and they want to buy a property and they want to then rent it out. So they go to the bank. Let's just say the property is a million dollars for easy numbers. They go to the bank, they get a $700,000 loan for it, and then they need to raise $300,000 for the rest. And so they go out and raise money from investors, otherwise called LPs or limited partners. So that would be typically the type of person we're talking about. And that's that's essentially what it is. Now, there are lots of things to consider when you're evaluating these deals. There could be, a, you want to look at the strategy. So is this type of strategy where you know they're just buying it, not doing a ton of renovations, maybe just a little bit and just renting it out. So it's kind of like a straight yield deal. So they're just looking for some basic return on the investment. Could be a value add strategy where they're going in, they're doing a ton of work, a ton of revamp renovations, and then hoping to make more on the back end. So with those types of things, you would not expect to get any distributions in the first year or maybe two while they're doing all those renovations. They need the cash to go in there and do all that. So those that's just kind of a... I guess a little bit of a high level overview on what a syndication is. Yeah. Let's so let's compare it back to the Vanguard Real Estate Index Fund. So syndication versus Grant Vanguard Real Estate Index. I mean, there's some overlap, but it's Yeah. So I guess high level comparison. One is more diversified. You can buy it, sell it regularly. The dividend on it. I'm talking about the Vanguard real estate ETF would be it's somewhere around 3% right now. Yeah. Way more liquid. With the syndication, that's a little bit more, at least I would think of it as higher return potential, but mm. probably also higher risk. Way and, less liquid. Right. So once you put your money into these types of things, there's really nothing you can do until the fund closes. Mm -hmm. All the work is done up front deciding on if this is something you want to invest in or not. Back in the day, or maybe they still are, but like they're a big kind of like junky product financial advisors used to sell or maybe still do. 
is like these real estate deals. They would they would just prop or put add in a bunch of commissions on them. That's what I mean. And then people buy them, and then they'd be like uh, locked in, can't get rid of it, and just garbage deals. The reason they suck so bad is because there was so much expense. Like it's kind of like buying whole life. It's like whole life is not that bad. I mean, it's okay. It's just when you add so much expense to something, anything's going to look like trash. But there's those aren't don't seem to be as common anymore. Maybe they, I bet they still do exist out there. But but it, I guess the point I'm making is it's extremely illiquid. Like as in, you can't get to the money. There's also some. Um, it's not necessarily like, like it's kind of more the wild wild west. So when you start talking about private investments, like you're, you know, you could they could steal the money. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Or they could just be terrible real estate people. and maybe That's probably more common, but it's on you to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, I would, I mean, it's definitely, or like you said earlier, like we were saying earlier, it's definitely for a certain type of person. It can definitely work. You can, it yeah. can definitely be, get in, you can definitely get a nice return from this. It's just for a person who, like we were talking about earlier, has built up enough assets, your high net worth. You've got, if you've got $5 million and you want to throw, chunk of your portfolio in this Mm. that is all fine and well and you have a taste for it and you like the idea of it and yeah yeah now there there are some um tax benefits to it a little bit there's we're not going to get into that too much today i don't think we should get into that too much today but if y'all want to if y'all want us to dig into that we'll do it we'll let us know and we'll cover it in another episode but but there are just for the sake of today there are some unique tax aspects of owning syndications that don't you don't get from having these in these publicly traded like vanguard etf type vehicles but they're not uh that's not a reason to do it i guess (laughs) it's just a kind of a compliment to doing it if you feel driven to go down that path so how do you i think the biggest thing about it is um if you are the type that kind of wants to try that out is how do you start to go about like finding a deal google yeah (laughs) um you can look up credible sources i mean there you probably can find some on the white coat investor i know there are some there there are many it seems to be a lot of physician blogs that you can uh you can find these types of deals from word of caution about that i learned this lesson i used to actually well so just keep in mind the more you're seeing something, the more likely there is money being implanted into it being seen by you. <laughs> so this is the case with real estate, you, especially for syndications, because it's sometimes hard to figure out what the expenses are. There might be a reason you've seen it 55 times. And that might be that because the real estate fund is like pumping some money, serious money to these people that are promoting it. And that... And that can be okay. I mean, you got to market your stuff. So like part of that is okay. But like at the end of the day, it also could be terrible. Like it could kill your return. Like that that in itself might be a deal breaker. Just the fact that they spend so much money on, you know, putting it in front of you. Yeah. I mean, it's it would be, it's always tough to tell because you really don't know how it's going to work out. I mean, there is a decent amount of element of unknown here going into these types of things. So whenever I'm looking at the for clients or whoever, if you can kind of think about it as a framework for vetting these as 
looking at the people. So who's running this? Who has their finger on the trigger? Mm-hmm. What's the company like? The terms of the deal as sort of like the second stool or leg of the stool and then the property and the market that it's in. So when you're looking at the person or the sponsor who's running this, one quick tip that I learned just from Peter Kim's uh, Passive Real Estate Academy course that I took on how to vet these is just first step is you can just Google the sponsor's name and either add either lawsuit or fraud. <laughs> you, yeah. you may find some things there that will turn you off from that. So that's a very quick first step where you don't have to waste any time talking to anybody. <laughs> yeah. So that's an easy first step. You want to know, do the principles of this business have their own personal money in this deal? That's another way to evaluate. Do they have skin in the game here? Mm-hmm. Are they the personal guarantor on the loan? That's another way to look at, do they have skin in the game here? That means so, they have to personally back it if it blows up. The loan. That's right. That's right. So in general, you can kind of look at our incentives aligned here along with track record and how many deals they've done. Have they ever lost investors principal? That's something you should be able to find on the track record or you can ask. Mm-hmm. It would also be important to know if they were around during the financial crisis, you can ask them what was their experience during this. How many bankruptcies did they have? Or something not? like that or... You know, just in general, I mean, for most of them, it was probably a great learning opportunity. Yeah, you're kind of just looking for baggage. and, or I mean, really, you're looking for people that are rock stars. You're not, you're, you're trying to make sure they're not only like not crooks. <laughs> you don't want to obviously have a crook, uh, but you really want to have like the best of the best. Because if they're just average, like go buy the Vanguard real estate sign. Like that's the whole thing. I think... At least that's how I've used syndications or just real estate like this in general. When we start talking about picking the winners and the losers. So we're talking about actively investing. That's like when I say active, I mean, we're trying to pick the winners and avoid the losers. So when we're talking about picking the winners and avoiding the losers, the whole idea behind it is you have to be really good at picking the winners. Otherwise, it's pointless because you can just go buy the average. That's what the Vanguard real estate fund is, is it's just kind of like more of just the average of, of all the big, big market. Yeah, that's right. So if you have incentives aligned and they've got a long track record of good performance, that's probably one to look more into if this mm-hmm. is some, you know, a route you want to go. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're hearing that just, this is like the tiny, tiny surface. If you're hearing this and you're like, ah, I don't want to have to uh, screen people i didn't know that was part of it or like uh, i don't know about that part or then that's a deal breaker in itself i would say go just don't passive through the real vanguard real estate index because that's the you know if you're going to say the most important part like that's the most important part is you got to be able to screen the deal and probably education too like i would say that's important right you what do you think like educating yourself because this is like you're responsible if you're if you're investing in syndications like you're the guy picking the deal right that's right i mean really the only work there is to be done is you vetting it up front and then you know like i said earlier these are not small minimums most of the time a syndication can be smaller maybe 25,000 or 50,000 but 
most of the funds, which is basically just multiple syndications within one fund or multiple properties, they're 50 to 100,000. Mm-hmm. But you're right. <laughs> if you're not willing to do a few hours of work up front, it's probably a, a good screen that maybe yeah. you shouldn't. Yeah. So that's one little frustration I or I guess it's just a technicality. Like a people will call it passive and I don't think it's, it's, a, it's less passive. It's not purely passive. When we start talking about if we're comparing it to the Vanguard real estate option, like that's as passive as you can get. This is starting to get, you're dipping your toe into like actually having to do some work. I mean, it's not owning a real estate uh, direct. You're not like buying a house and renting it out yourself. That's very much active. Uh, but this is definitely a step in the, you have to spend some time and have some headaches to deal with potential uh, direction. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. And some people aren't really interested in that. Yeah. The other thing to evaluate is the property itself and the market that it's in. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I find interesting is looking at, does does the property, is the property in a rent control area, an area that has rent control laws, or if it's a fund, does this person who is managing the fund plan to invest in any areas that might have rent control laws or the surrounding areas have rent control laws? And those are laws where rent increases can be capped. I mean, the laws can be very different depending on the area and what that actually is. But if I was investing in an area, (laughs) buying a property, I would want to know that there is not some kind of cap on the amount of rent that I can charge. Now, I'm sure it comes from a good place like these laws, but I would at least want to know that if I plan to buy a building, go in and put a ton of money into it, renovate it so that you know maybe a higher income type of person could rent it, yeah. I would want to be aware of what those laws are. Yeah, that's a good one. I also, uh, one thing I just thought about... I- I didn't hear you. I haven't heard you mention yet about um, looking at future projections or proposals as a way of screening deals. Yes, that's obviously (laughs) super important. But the problem is, have you ever seen a real estate deal that doesn't have great projections? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's typically not on the sales flyer where they're like, well, we're probably going to be mediocre. (laughs) Five, six percent, maybe. No. Um, yeah, that's the projections are always going to look good. Otherwise, the person wouldn't be buying it and they wouldn't be bringing this deal to you if they couldn't, you know, conjure up a, a good looking sales flyer. Um, right. But do all of them, the question is, do they meet their projections? Yeah. I mean, you're at this point, you're really just taking their word for what they're able, what they're saying they're able what to they do. What they think they might be able to do. That's right. So, you know, if they say they're going to be able to cut costs by some percentage, you, I mean, it's at least in my mind, it's all fair to ask, you know, what evidence do you have that you can do this? Is there another property that you can show me the books on that you were able to do this? You were able to cut costs by this amount. Or if they say we're going to be able to increase rent by X amount. Great. Let's look at the, you can Google other properties in that area and look at the comparable rents. And if they're saying that they're going to be able to get, you know, way over the, all of the comps, you might want to ask what makes this a luxury or a premium 
apartment or whatever it is that you're going to be able to charge this. Yep. You also want to look (laughs) if they're going to do big renovations to increase rent. In other words, a value add strategy. Are they also increasing their maintenance costs in the projections? Because if you're using higher cost materials, you're probably going to have higher cost and maintenance going forward. Yeah, fancy stuff costs more to fix. That's right. But if they're keeping all of that flat, that might be a good question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. No, there and so I think you're we're just scratching the surface real with really with all these uh kind of questions to ask. There's a lot of um areas to dig into to screen these kinds of deals. But I if we're talking about the big picture takeaway, I think it's that you need to be in a position where you're comfortable knowing how to screen a deal. And if you have a hundred of them to choose from, you can kind of like, you you know what to do to ask the right questions to get, to help you identify what the, you know, better options look like. And that's where the challenge is with syndications. I think that's, but that's also where the opportunity is. That's right. Everybody thinks so, you know, everybody's like, yeah, I got this. So that's, I mean, people are overconfident. That's like a human nature thing. So, but it, it definitely, you know, has plenty of upside and it's a good potential avenue to go down. How does syndication differ? You talk about private real estate funds. So maybe we could talk a little bit about like that as a alternative. Yeah. So a private real estate fund would be similar to a syndication, except it's multiple properties. A lot of times they have not purchased the property yet. So in some ways you have actually less to, to vet. You may only have the person and um, the general deal terms to vet. You don't know what the property is. So it's a little bit of a, a blind trust in that aspect. You're more so trusting the person and their track record and that they can execute on that. But another, another thing to, uh, at least think about with these funds is sometimes if you're just investing the minimum and let's say this fund is investing in 15 different properties all across the U.S., just geographically diversified, you will have a state tax return (laughs) for each one of those states. So it could eat into your costs a little bit if you're having to file a ton of state tax returns and just headache too, if all you're investing is the minimum. So that's kind of some a little bit of a maybe that's a small thing to think about, but something to be aware of when you are investing in funds that you're gonna get a K1 and you're gonna have to file state taxes in all those states. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a pain in the rear. I mean that like or it's it's either a pain you're gonna have to deal with or you're gonna have to pay your accountant like a lot more in fees to kind of which that that's a that's a cost you probably aren't thinking about like accounting fees, but that's yeah. a pure cost because you don't have to pay accounting fees to invest in the Vanguard real estate index fund. If you're doing your own taxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. So that's what I, I like. Anytime I'm thinking about this, I, I always go back to the index, like buying an index fund in, in real estate. is. How does this compare to that? Yeah, uh, it's an easy pri- benchmark. But private real estate is a little bit more like, so it's kind of like, you know, more diversified, I guess, in theory, but typically more diversified than just 
buying into one syndication. Uh, so it's a step the direction of the Vanguard real estate index. But, you know, how diversified do these things get? I mean, what kind of, I mean, are they like a tiny step that direction or do they typically have a whole lot of diversification? It depends. There could be some that maybe they're only buying three to five properties and it's all in the same location mm -hmm. generally, or it could be, you know, all spread across, you know, maybe the Southwest and the Southeast. And in that sense, it's more diversified. Yeah. There's definitely a range there. They're not all equally as diversified. Yeah. Right. Anything private like this, like I was saying earlier, it's like the wild, wild West. So you get a much wider scope of possible choices and there's less regulation, less transparency. Sometimes it's, it's, you end up having to do a little bit more like homework on things. Um, then that's where the active part, that's where the time, you know, commitment comes into play. Yeah. You definitely want to examine those deals pretty thoroughly and know what am I actually going to get paid from this? Like what's the structure? You know, how do I get paid? You will probably see something, at least really depends on the deal. They're all different, but a lot of times you'll see something called a preferred return. And how that works is before the general partners or the company itself participate in the profits. Of course, that's after their fees, right? So they might have a one to 2% asset management fee associated with the deal. And then there might be something called an acquisition fee where there's a percentage they get for every property they acquire. And then there are performance incentives. So you might see something called a preferred return. Usually it could be somewhere around 8%. And that means you get that before the general partners participate in the profits. So how it could work is maybe the first year it's they're going in renovating. There's really no profits from that. Maybe you don't get anything. And then maybe the next year, they make 8%. And then you get you get all of that as a limited partner. They don't keep any. Now, it could also be cumulative. A cumulative preferred return means you get 8% per year. So if you don't get any profits in that first year, they still have to make up for that year before the general partners get to participate in any profits down the line. So that's what the preferred return is. If you see that, that's what it's talking about. Now, after that, there may be something called a profit split. And so, or you also might see the term waterfall structure. So what that is, just an example, it may be you get the 8% preferred return. Beyond that, maybe you get 70% and the general partner gets 30% up to 15% of the, and that's usually measured by the internal rate of return or IRR. And then there might be another hurdle where after that 15%, the split is 50-50. So the general partners are incentivized to get a higher return. That's a fairly typical structure that you might see in these deals. Mm -hmm. Now, if they get there, I mean, hey, that's great, but you don't necessarily know that they're going to hit those numbers. How would you measure success in this kind of thing? Like what is the, uh, what's a good deal versus a not good deal? Well, I would say you can't necessarily just look at whichever one is telling you the the highest <laughs> targeted IRR on the sales flyer. Right. I think it depends on what your goal is going into this. If you're just looking to maximize returns, 
you still have to go through the vetting process and make sure everything makes sense here in this deal. You like the person, the deal itself makes sense on paper. It doesn't seem like there's any unreasonable projections. Maybe the market itself that it's in, you want to look at that and look at what's the unemployment rate there. What's the population growth? Mm. Is there job diversity or is it maybe one employer is kind of like the only show in town? You want to look for that sort of thing. really depends on what your goal going into this is. Yeah. And I think the best, like I said earlier, is if you're doing it like passion project kind of thing. So if you have like a, for instance, like an type of area that you have an interest in, or you want to help a certain population, or you want to do things a different way than has been done in the past, and you're able to get in on something where they're doing that, that's a home run because then you don't have to worry so much about like, you know, I mean, you still want to look at the returns and that kind of thing, but it's like you're doing it for other reasons and that can that's going to provide motivation. But going back to the I, – I keep going back to the Vanguard real estate <laughs> index. Um, I was I was looking at the um, – I'm not going to say the – maybe we can talk like generally about the returns, but like this fund has done really well. Like if I put this fund – on a flyer and start selling it as a syndication, people would buy it all day long. Charge an extra 1% on top of it. Yeah. And throw in a 1% fee. Cause I made it look pretty. I mean, like the baseline option is pretty solid. So you need to have a really good reason, um, for doing something other than it, I think, because if you can earn, so like I'm looking at the end of year returns for 2020 ending 2021, and it's, we'll just say it's above 18% uh, return uh, over the three-year period. The one year is like above 40% uh, before, return before taxes. So this fund, as well, real estate overall has done fairly well. And so it's not this fund that's special. This fund is just like the market of real estate. It owns, it's meant to be kind of an index, you know, a collection of the market. So check the fund out and you'll see kind of what I'm talking about. Like it it does pretty well. And so I think that's a good measure of like, if you can own this fund and not spend a minute of your time and earn the same as this is investing in some of these other deals, that's, I wouldn't be interested in doing that personally. This is just kind of a waste of time. Now, if you have a passion for it and you want to get into it and learn about it, then you're, it's worthwhile to spend time on it. Cause you're going to, you got to learn. That's the other thing. I think if you do have an interest in it, you do want to get into it. Um, I wouldn't beat yourself up if you have like a crappy deal, the first deal. Like some of these deals, you got to have good expectations going in. You might have a terrible deal, the first deal that you break even on or lose some money on or something like that. Or maybe you lose a lot of money on. I mean, that's what you're getting into, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people get into them because they see the income component of it. So they might see 8% preferred return. So I'm going to get 8% per year as a distribution. And they might think about that as a way to maybe replace their income, whether it's they want to scale back at work or for one reason or another, but Mm -hmm. maybe also not thinking about, well, maybe instead of the form of a dividend, you could also just sell down a chunk of whatever the investment is like the Vanguard fund or whatever, and just kind of do essentially the same thing, but in a little bit of a different form. And then they also probably hear about the tax benefits 
too, mm. which, you know, insert tax disclaimer, but um, <laughs> talk to your accountant <laughs> for tax advice. Yeah. If you don't have real estate professional status, you know, these losses that might show up on your K1, even though you actually got money in the form of a distribution, your K1 tax form shows a loss because of the depreciation or the expenses they incurred during a renovation or whatever it is, you don't actually get to deduct that from your wages unless you have real estate professional status. All those losses get suspended for future use to write off when you have actually a net gain for the year. Yeah. But it's still a pretty, it's a you know good tax. There are some tax benefits, uh, but it's not like, uh, it's a home run if you're a real estate professional status. Like it's a very good tax benefit. That's um, right. Even you if can, you didn't have that, I mean, you could, you know, maybe one way you could do that is maybe instead of putting everything that you were going to put into this type of vehicle at once, and let's say you're five years from retirement, maybe you do half now, half in two or three years, and then maybe by the time you actually start to get that that income taxed and those losses are all suspended, well, now you're no longer working, maybe you're in a lower tax bracket, you can potentially do some interesting things there tax-wise. Yeah, I think that's where it works well. Um, if I'm generalizing, it's like, the more you're going the direction of like, I want to make this a pretty serious business or side hustle or, or you know, eventual full-time gig, aka real estate professional status, uh, the better it's going to work because and mainly because you're going to be able to dedicate time to it. You're going to be able to get a lot better at it. You're going to also get all these tax benefits, as, you know, if you're real estate professional status. So uh, on the other hand, if you have like one property or one deal every 10 years or something, it's going to be hard to be on your game when you're doing one of anything every 10 years. Right. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good kind of high level overview. Um, anything, any parting thoughts on your end, Hugh, you can think of? I think just the, the only word of advice is to just not throw money at any deal that's put in front of you. Really do some work up front. Yeah. I think that's really good. Don't trust marketing proposals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't, uh, can't just believe everything you see on a pretty Remember, flyer. remember that they're all going to look good and and the people are huge. The people is, I would say they're the, the people involved are probably, it's probably the number one. Absolutely. And reach out to them, you know, come up with some questions, you know, that you want to ask them beforehand and reach out to them and ask questions before you put any money into something. They're willing to, uh, to answer questions. So do yep. that as yep. a first step. If you work with a financial advisor or if you work with us, talk to us beforehand. <laughs> Don't just be like, Hey, I got a deal. I'm, I'm done. Um, Cause you know, we can kind of help poke holes in it with you kind of ask you some questions to think about as you approach it. Um, but getting uh, multiple sets of eyes on it is, can be helpful and, or have your involve your spouse or whatever that, that sometimes works pretty well. But Yeah. I mean, I've done joint meetings. If you don't want to ask the questions and you work with us, no, you don't want to be the one asking the tough questions. We can do that for you. Yeah, we'll be the bad guys. <laughs> All right. Well, 
Thanks for coming on, Hugh. I appreciate it as always. And um, try to stay safe in uh, all this crazy winter weather. All right. You too. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor. All content included in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial tax or legal advice. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by Finance for Physicians as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. If you don't have an advisor or would like a second opinion, feel free to check out our website for recommended advisors.